My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 186, wow, (laughs) of Legally Clueless. Thanks for rocking with this podcast. Of course, make sure you head over to legallycluelessafrica.com. Once you're there, you can sign up and join our community. You can check out our social media pages and you can listen to all our audio episodes, watch all our video and tour series and so much more. So head over to legallycluelessafrica.com. I've put a link to it in the show notes. So I'm super excited for the story in this episode because first and foremost, it was such a steal to get somebody so accomplished on the podcast. Her name is Moki Mokura. She's the head of African No Filter. Listen to this. I remember once lying in bed and one of the girls in my dormitory called me an idiot. And I couldn't say idiot because in Nigeria we said idiot. So I remember thinking, I can't call her back and idiot because I didn't know how to say it. So I remember being under my duvet practicing saying idiot, 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 idiot until I got it. And then when I got it, I opened up my duvet and I said, you idiot. That's coming up in a bit. But before we get to it though, let me share the song of the week. Yeah. It's a song a friend I made in New York shared with me. So they were telling me about this artist because while I was there, I got to watch Burner Boy at Afropunk and anybody who knows me knows that I'm a super fan of Brenda Boy so that was amazing and I made friends with this amazing woman called Anne she's a Kenyan woman doing big things in New York and while we were talking she told me about this particular artist who I'd never heard of before because I live under a rock <laughs> or rather in a village his name is Asake and I really like the song Organize I really do I have close to no understanding of what he's talking about in the song to be quite frank I, I really don't get it but there's horns in the beat that I absolutely love I love his gold teeth I can't explain why <laughs> So I put a link to that song in the show notes, so make sure you check it out. All right, one thing that I wanted to share in my little short catch up with you before we jump into 100 African Stories is something that I came across a couple of, probably even years ago. So as of now, I'm recording this after spending the day with some very awesome people who I reconnected with. I've known them for a bit in a professional setting but haven't really hung out with them in like a social setting and it was so refreshing to hang out with them. We connected so easily, the energy was right and we just felt very open about our our experiences and the lessons life is currently teaching us in a rather harsh way (laughs) and we ended up hanging out from about one to like 10 p.m. That's hectic, isn't it? And it just reminded me of a quote that I saw a couple of years ago, which was, this is not word for word, but it was something to the effect of, you are yet to meet everyone you will love. And back then, I didn't fully understand the quote because when I read it, I was surrounded by people who I love and I just felt like the people I have are enough. So I didn't understand what the quote was saying. I was just like, I don't get it. Here, we're okay. We have quite a few people that we love and we're good. And now that I've grown up a little bit and experienced life and 
some of the people that I love, I've had to let go of. Some life has just happened and we've distanced each other. I realized that sometimes I was holding on to friendships, to relationships, out of fear of loneliness or fear of losing that person. Not necessarily because I was feeling enriched or really in that relationship. And I was scared to let go because I thought I would never experience love again. I would never experience true friendship again. I would never meet my chosen people. You know what I mean? And I'm just trying to right now ensure that I don't force it. Like if something isn't necessarily working or I feel uncomfortable, if I'm still enough, I know when it's time to let go and I know when to stop forcing it and when to just leave it leave it be and not to lose myself in the fear of loneliness because I feel like if I let go of this person I will never find someone like that again and yeah so I I just kind of found myself working my way back to that quote that I saw so many years ago you're yet to meet everyone you will love and it just felt so liberating that I had to share it with you okay let's jump into 100 African stories I don't know if you remember the show because I was such a fan of it one of my friends was actually actually acting in it and the name of the show is Jacob's Cross and it was a show shot in South Africa but we used to watch it here in Kenya and I just remember thinking it was one of the first time that I was seeing such good quality from an African production and a story that was in woe unto us poverty etc it was so enjoyable. I legit would never miss an episode. Fast forward to Legally Clueless going on its first tour last year in August. And our first tour was across Nairobi, Mombasa, Kisumu, Nakuru, which are all cities or counties in Kenya. We were able to do this in partnership with Africa No Filter. And this is an organization that is really actively working to erase harmful stereotypes about Africa and mainly through the creative art and independent media honestly so what was so awesome is the first time I heard of the head of that company I was like her name sounds so familiar but I just thought it was like through media circles etc etc when I sat down to record her story and she talked about being in Jacob's Cross I was like aha (laughs) this is where I heard that name first you know and I really love her story Because the story shows you how sometimes you can only connect the dots backwards. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. People know me as Moki Makura, but Moki is like a nickname. And it came from Olajumoke, which is my real name because I'm Nigerian. But I went to school when I was nine in England and they couldn't say Jumoke. So I started being called Jamoki. And I got into so much trouble at school that when I left school, I was like, you know what, Jamoki reminds me of naughtiness. So I just shortened it to Moki and I reinvented myself as Moki. So that's what my name is. However, some people in Nigeria, and when I go back there, sometimes I say my name is Jamoki. But honestly, if I passed you on the road and you said Jamoki, I wouldn't turn around because I haven't been called that. In fact, nobody, I think my sister calls me Jamoki. My brother calls me Moke. Nobody calls me outside of immediate family. I think (laughs) it means everybody will look after me. Okay, so I grew up in Lagos and we are a Lagosian family. So I'm not even Nigerian, I'm Lagosian. In fact, my family, the Akinshimoyans, that's my maiden name. We're one of five families that can rule Lagos, like the kingdom of Lagos. So, 
you know, my father was Prince Second Shimoin, and you know, if I could really push it, I could call myself technically a princess if I was <laughs> if I was going to go there. But it doesn't mean that much these days, and we don't respect our royalty like we used to. So we grew up very sort of middle class in an area called Ikui. You know, I remember we had a big government house, and we had a garden, and we used to cycle around the area. And one story I remember is I. My dad said he was going to buy me and my brother a bike. And for some reason, I'd heard about a tricycle. And I thought because it sounded different, it was better than a bicycle. So I asked my dad for a tricycle. And I remember the day it arrived, the bicycle and the tricycle, the bicycle for my brother, the tricycle. I was so angry. I was like, what is this three-wheeled monster thing that you're giving me? I didn't know what a tricycle was. And I looked like a baby cycling around because I had to have it because you couldn't return things then. So I had a tricycle when all my age mates were on bikes. You can imagine how embarrassing that was. But anyway, so that's the memory that I have. It was a very kind of free, kind of free childhood. I know that I used to read a lot. I remember we used to roller skate on the roads. We used to cycle. We had gangs, little girls. That's when I was younger. I just remember playing. There wasn't much television. I remember at nine o'clock exactly every weekday, if we were not in bed, my mother would bring out the cane, the whip to whip us to get into bed. And that became a game for us. And she would hide the whip in different places and we wouldn't know. So sometimes you got caught out because it'd be under her chair, behind her chair. So I remember that. Yeah, I haven't thought about that for a long time, actually. So I left for the UK when I was nine and my brother um, left when he was 11. And that was the age when he went into high school and the high schools weren't very good. And I was probably supposed to have gone at 11, but I was such a precocious child. I was like, no, why is my brother going? I want to go too. So at nine, they packed me off to boarding school. I was a little bit young. I don't know if I regret going so early, but I was put up two years. So a lot of my friends from that school are actually two years older than me. So I sort of went through school with kids who were much older than me. And I think I was always a little bit immature as a result because I wasn't in the right age. But at the time, Nigeria, the academic system wasn't very good. Schools weren't good. And here's my problem. Instead of us trying to fix the situation, our parents, because they could, sent us abroad. And I think that was the beginning of the sort of deterioration of the country because, you know, if we had an option, we were investing our money in building the UK education system by sending our kids there and not doing much to ours. Nigerians were super confident. I do not, I'll be honest with you, remember thinking I was different or black or anything. There were a couple of moments, like I remember the food. I'd never eaten a salad. I remember the first date, they gave us a ham salad. It's literally a green leaf and half a tomato and a piece of cucumber. I just, that's when I cried my first time, when I realized, that, oh my God, am I going to have to eat this food? But look at me now. I eat salads all the time. They become my favorite food. Um, that was one. And then it was just things like, I remember once lying in bed and one of the girls in my dormitory called me an idiot. And I couldn't say idiot because in Nigeria we said idiots. So I remember thinking, I can't call her back an idiot because I didn't know how to say it. So I remember being under my duvet practicing saying idiot, 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 until I got it. And then when I got it, I opened up my duvet and I said, you idiot. You know, it's things like that, that I, you know, I knew I wasn't the same, but very quickly I learned. I learned, I went from idiot, idiots to idiot. And that's how my career has been. Learn quickly. And I think that's, there's a sort of challenge in that. There wasn't like, oh my God, I'm different. It was like, I can be like that too. Well, I will say, I say it now, not that I'm proud of it, but I got expelled from two schools just because <laughs> I had a very strong mind, a very strong world, and I knew what I didn't like. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted. Um, so when I left, I remember I knew 
I saw visions of myself carrying a briefcase. In those days, we had briefcases. I didn't know what was in it. And I, I imagined myself sitting in hotels. So there's always some element of travel, having business meetings. I don't know what the business meeting is about, but I remember quite strongly wearing a suit, carrying a briefcase and being in hotels. That's what I, I did, doing business. Well, I went to university and I think that's one of the things that that's drummed into you as an African, you know, certainly as a Nigerian, that there is no choice. You go to university and then whatever you want to do, you do after that. And like a lot of Nigerians, if you were not like a mathematician or a medical person, you did law. So I, I applied to do law. And in the end, I actually didn't get in for law as my first choice. So I ended up doing politics, economics and law. And to me, it really was just a means to an end. It was for me to get my degree because by then I decided I, I w wanted to be a singer. <laughs> I joined a band, didn't last very long. And actually I found out at some point that my father, who was not a, he died when I was 16. So he was not a strict, strict disciplinarian. And I found out that he'd actually tried to go to drama school when he was younger in the UK. At, at his, you know, in his time, that would have been the sort of, I guess the 40s, 50s, an African going to drama school. So, you know, I think that sort of, Part of me was in there. And my dad was a writer, you know, eventually he was a historian and a writer. So I think he, he'd always sort of been on the arty side. So he wasn't a typical father, but he died a little bit too young for me to understand that. So, so yeah, I guess when I eventually left, I, I realized I had to get a job because you have to pay for things, right? So getting a job and having a career were very different. At that age, it was just about getting a job. And my first job was <laughs> it was painful. I cried because I was like, oh my God, people actually do this every day. I was a bit spoiled. And it was working in a store. It was working in a store on Oxford Street in, in London. And it was physically, physically moving the batches of clothes that had been dispatched. So you'd have to, have to put 10 size 10s there, 10 size 12s there. You were physically moving clothes around and you were in a basement and it was exhausting. And I cried and I was like, I don't want to do this. But then I got up and I did it. It was a summer job. So I did it for the summer because my, you know, I wanted to go and work in a shop, but you can't, you need experience. And the woman was like, okay, well, I'll give you this other job, which is in the basement shifting clothes. And I was like, I'll take it. Um, yeah. So I did it. I did it. And you, you know, it just, it, you know, it, it just made me realize that, you know, the first day of anything, the first moment of anything is the hardest. And you very quickly get used to anything, you know, and I think it's something like 30 days or 31 days it takes to develop a habit. But I was always quite, you know, I guess creative. I, I still feel I am, but in different ways. But I think certainly the arty thing, and I was always very good at drama, you know, and it was ironic because when I did become an actress, I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm an actress. I didn't actually correlate the fact that I was acting and I enjoyed it to this because the way I came into acting was totally random and it wasn't like a deliberate thing. But it just, you know how actually sometimes when you look back on your career, you look at how things happen and you find yourself in a place that was inevitable, but you didn't see it at the time. So the acting came in later in my life, actually, because I was already on television. I used to do a show called Carte Blanche, which is like 60 minutes. So it's like an investigative show. So I was the Africa host. And this series came up and they were casting for a Nigerian because it was being shot in South Africa. And I was one of the few Nigerians who was, I guess, better known. So I got approached and I looked at it. I thought, oh, God, you know, Nollywood movie. Of course, I'm not an actress. I'm a television presenter, you know. And this guy just kept harassing me. He just said, just come and do the audition. Just come and do the audition. So I went. You know, I looked at the script. I couldn't act. I've never acted before. Well, professionally. And I remember I just... I did it. And then I forgot about it. And literally two months later, I get a phone call saying, can you come in for costume? I'm like, costume for what? They're like, you've got the part. You're like, for like a, this 
lead part. And I was like, oh my God. I remember I took my husband out to dinner that night. I said, you know, should I do it? And he was like, mm, no, I don't think you should. And I was like, exactly, I'm going to do it. If he'd said yes, I might have said no. But because he said no, I said yes. And that's how I became an actress. Literally, I went in one day, did makeup, costume. And then on the Monday, I went in and that was my first day on set. So Jacob's Cross to people who are under the age of 30. <laughs> was at one point it's a, well you wouldn't even know the reference because I normally say it's like Dallas you know which a lot of people don't know but it was a it was a, um, a South African based series where Mnet tried very hard to make it pan-African so the lead was um, South African that was Jacob he had a sister who was Nigerian because his mother South African mother had you know had an affair with a Nigerian very wealthy oil man who had a lot of money so that was the story so I had an evil Nigerian brother and I had a good South African husband, um, brother. So it was really just the dynamics of this wealthy family and, you know, drama. It, there's dynasties on now, dynasties back on. It's pretty similar to that. But what was unique about it is that for, it was really the first time anything had been done like that. It was an upmarket series. So when people say, oh, Moki, you're in a soapy, I'm like, no, it was a drama series. Thank you. But it was a drama series. It was very richly shot. You know, it, it, it was beautifully made. The production values were really high. And that's part of the reason why they didn't actually carry it on because it was really expensive to shoot. But I played Jacob's sister. So I was like a lead, which was like amazing because for somebody who'd really never acted before, it was quite a big part. But as I said, I was just playing myself. I spoke exactly like I speak now. <laughs> and I was because it required somebody, you know, who was a little bit reserved, who'd gone to education in the UK and new business. So it was it, it was my alter ego. She Palake was the sort of person who would have carried a briefcase around and sat in hotels. And that's what she did. Actually, let me just say this. Right now, I get a lot of young people who say to me they're curious about where they want to go in their careers. They want to be strategic. Should they do this? Should they do that? And my advice is actually, you know what? Just figure out what do you like? Let, let the universe lead you because that's kind of what happened to me. A lot of things came to me. So I had gone into PR. I'd set up my own PR agency Actually, I hadn't set it up by then, but I was working in public relations. That's, that's what I started doing. Somebody just said, do you want to audition for this carte blanche? It was a Sunday job. So I had a full-time job Monday to Friday. And then I went in every Sunday to record because I, was, I started off as being a presenter, on-air presenter. And again, it, I auditioned for it. And strangely enough, I was good. Um, there were other people that auditioned, but it wasn't like, oh, I really want it. It was like, oh, great, I'll do it. And then at some stage, it was like, God, every Sunday I had to be in the studio. And then it became a bit painful. But then I, then I wanted more. I wanted to actually go out and do stories instead of just, you know, present other people's stories. And then it just slowly grew. So once, once I was in it, it grew and I had an interest in it. And also I've always been writing. I'd always sort of written stuff. So not so much journalism, but just that storytelling aspect was important. And then I started producing a couple of stories for, so it was all very organic. And in between, I set up my own business. I had my own, but this thing was like a Sunday thing. And then occasionally I go off and do stories because, you know, I worked for the Carte Blanche Africa section, which had no budget. So we'd have to do stories around Africa on $1, whereas the South African budget was like thousands and thousands. And, you know, they got to do a lot of stuff. So it was hard. Um, and we had to try and find stories in South Africa that were pan-African. So it was really kind of, you had to want to do it. But I, but I enjoyed it. And that's kind of how I got into it. When I left England, and I left England because I realized that as an ambitious Black young woman, I wasn't going to get very far because there was a glass ceiling. There really was. In that day and age, I was good at my job. I worked for one of the, like a really interesting PR company. It's this, it, I don't know if you remember a series called Absolutely Fabulous. It was a British series, but it was based on the woman's life that ran the company that I worked for. So it was quite high profile. 
but it was they, they were, it, they were, it was a Jewish owned organization. I was black. The, you know, I wasn't going to run that organization ever. And if you know, there was a moment in time when I suddenly thought I need to go somewhere where the color of my skin and things I can't help won't hold me back. And I thought the only place to go where I can leverage everything I have, my name, my, you know, just everything about me is home. So I tried really hard to go back to Nigeria. But at the time, Nigeria was going through <laughs> one of its leadership crises. So we had Abacha, which was a dictator in power. And it just wasn't a good place to be. And my mother was like, why are you coming home? You don't stay. So I remember I literally was reading a magazine. And I came across an article on four women in PR and marketing in South Africa who were doing really well. I'd never thought about South Africa. South Africa was this place that, you know, it's apartheid. They don't like black people. And I thought, I'm going to go there because I was a bit adventurous. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to see the world. I was young. So I literally, literally got a list of PR companies in South Africa, faxed them. I don't know if anybody knows what faxing means, <laughs> but it's what came before email. Faxed them all, said I'm coming, got interviews, did. And then they said, when are you coming to South Africa? I said, two weeks time. I booked a flight and I just came. I did interviews. I, and I eventually, I, eventually I got a job, but it was really a case of, let me go somewhere where there's opportunity. And I remember at the same time, I actually went for an interview in Nigeria and it was so awful. I went, I, I, I said, I actually got a job. They gave me a job and I said, well, let me see if I can do it for a week. So I took a week's holiday, went to Lagos, went to that office one day and I told my sister to come and pick me up and I spent the rest of the time sitting by the pool at the Ikui Club because I couldn't I couldn't there was no there was no anyway Nigeria is not then was not what it is today and I couldn't have done it but South Africa was just a little bit more and I think because I spent a lot of time in the UK it was difficult to transition to Nigeria at that time you know you switch on the light there was no like we, we didn't have lines you picked up the phone you couldn't make a call you had to go and lodge your call with the receptionist you know it was just archaic and it was such a big difference so South Africa was a nice landing pad in the middle middle ground for me and I kind of stayed I think a lot of things that I wanted to happen happened in South Africa I always say it was a magical country for me because there was just this opportunity to do new things in a way that would have been impossible in the UK. UK is not a very entrepreneurial, you know, hey, let's have this idea, or at least it wasn't when I was there. And when I got to South Africa, it was like, wow. I mean, you know, I wrote a book. I did a, you know, I did my own series called Living It, which was going around <laughs> lifestyles of wealthy Africans. Because at that time, you very rarely saw it. I mean, like now you see young, fashionable and African, you see housewives of Lecky, housewives of Lecky. None of that stuff was on then. So, you know, at that time when the series, I remember a lot of people were like, mm, we never get this on. And in fact, after we did the series, which I went around to, I don't know, about eight countries, just filming wealthy people living their lives. I remember we tried to sell it to, I think, a Dutch TV station. And the feedback I got was like, you know what, our viewers are not ready to see Africans living like this. Because in their heads, Africans were poor and they're sending aid there. But now you're telling me that Africans have more money than we do. Mm, we don't want this. So there was a real sense. That, and I, I kind of got onto this mission and I wrote a book, Africa's Greatest Entrepreneurs. Like, you know what, we have better entrepreneurs here than anywhere else in the world. Because if you can make it in Africa and become super rich, you can make it anywhere because the conditions are just so much harder. So, you know, I just became slightly obsessed with telling our stories and showcasing other people. I remember the first time when I, I started approaching people to that I wanted to interview them for a book. A couple of people were like, okay, so how much am I going to pay you? I'm like, no, I'm not doing it 
the, the money. That's not, you don't pay me. I will decide who goes in the book, not you, right? And then I get calls from people to say that, oh, can so-and-so go in the book because, you know? And I'd be like, no, this is about entrepreneurship. It's not about business, it's about people who've grown a sustainable business. And, you know, it's the story. It's not like a snapshot of this rich man, which is actually, you know, some of the stories here. But what I realized was that people as Africans were not used to telling our stories. And I'll give you one quick example. When I was filming Living It, we needed 13 episodes. I remember I had 12. We needed to find one more. It was just so painful because I would write to you and say, hey, you know, we're shooting this. Can I come and expose your richness? And, you know, whatever. Africans were like, "Mm, no, no way. No. I got so many no's. I learned the rejection. (laughs) Rejection just is water off my back. Doesn't bother me at all. But one day I remember I was watching, I think it was Dr. 90210. There's some Hollywood show. And there was a, do you know what a labiaplasty is? It was a plastic surgery um, show. And a labiaplasty is when a woman gets her labia on her vagina. I don't know, something was being done to it, but there was a camera filming it. That means there were camera people in the room. And this was in America. They got somebody to film their labiaplasty on TV. And I could not get an African out of the millions of us to show me their home. I remember thinking, oh my God, this, this is why we're not going to progress as people because we don't share our stories because there's just this thing as, you know, as Africans, I don't know, we don't want people to know that we have money. It was really hard. It was one of the toughest series. So when I look at what's on television now, half of me is like, damn, I wish I, I wish it was that easy now. But the other half of me is like, look where we are now. We are, we are proud. We're black. We're able to stand up and say, this is who we are without people saying, did you steal the money? No, we didn't steal the money. We have a business, you know? So, you know, I, I feel, it makes me sound old, but I really feel we've come a long way. You know, African Filter as a concept in the organization that I run now is started by another organization, but the seeds for it of shifting the narrative have been, I think, since I moved to South Africa, since I started doing these projects, because there was the book, there was more than one book, there was a series, there was the articles I wrote. There's always been consistent consistency in this need to challenge the stereotype of how the world sees us as Africans. And actually, it's funny that you know, I have a TED talk that I did, a TEDx talk that I did, just a little bit similar to what I'm talking about now. And I remember somebody sent it to me after I started Africa No Filter and said, Moki, you've always been consistent. And I thought, yeah, you know, sometimes you have to look back to realize that actually this was always the journey. And, you know, when this opportunity came, I just said, you know, it was like a God-given role because if I could have taken every skill set I have and put it together and created a job, it would be the one I'm doing now. From this moment in time, it's the absolute perfect job but you know it nothing is forever you know nothing is forever so you know right now I I love what I do I love the idea of having funding to support this mission which is about shifting the the stereotype you know Africa we've changed so much I mean look look at where I am now where you can't see where I am but it's a studio we're in Nairobi look there's young attractive technical people attractive creative people people can't imagine that this happens here you know that's one of the reasons why I actually really like the arts the creative and cultural industries, because I feel that a lot of people think that being creative and that side of things is for the rich. It's for the rich countries, right? You know, if you're into art and you put art up, you must be wealthy. And I feel that they don't see Africa as somewhere that has a creative industry because we're all busy scrubbing around digging for food and looking for our next meal. So I like it. You know, I went to the Dakar Biennale and I love just the idea of artists just doing what they do because I feel that even to this day that people don't traditionally see us like that and I think it's really important and I think the fact that African Filter allows us to support artists and creatives to do what they do because there are very few arts funders in Africa 
there's, there's Africans, we don't really appreciate it. I mean, how many, I mean, I don't know whether you, what your mom said to podcasting. My dear, did I send you to school to do that? Because there is still that because a lot of time we don't see how our children are going to be sustainable because it's not a market that, could, you know, that people don't consume it. And in fact, the research that Africa Filter did showed that a lot of Africans do not consume as in spend money on artist things. Yeah, we'll download money and um, music for free. We'll get your podcast. Everything's free. But it's a business and you've got to find a way to sustain the artists. And, you know, in other countries, it's the commercial, it's the commercial sector, it's the private sector that sponsors. In Africa, that sector is quite small still, you know, so I just feel that a lot needs to be done to make the sector viable and sustainable. But I'm glad that we can play our role in supporting it. So Africano Filter, it, we're probably about two and a half two and a half years old. It started off, like I said, Ford Foundation is one of our biggest funders. It started off as a project of theirs. I remember I used to work for the Gates Foundation and we were asked to fund it and I would have been the one making the funding decision. And I was just like, there's no way we could fund it. It doesn't align with the mission because every organization has its mission. And Africa No Filter's mission was really to shift harmful and stereotypical narratives about, but equally importantly, within Africa. The organization I worked for was not interested in doing that. But Moki was... And I remember we went to some event in New York and I looked at this and I thought, you know what? And I found out there was a job going. In fact, somebody, a Kenyan person sent it to me randomly because I didn't even know they were looking for an executive director. And I looked at it and I called up, you know, the woman who, who was behind it. And I said, is this what she's going to look at? If you apply for this, it'd be amazing. And I promise you within a month, I'd resigned from my job and I'd moved into this one. And it was a risk because I didn't know how much funding we were going to get. I didn't, you know, all I had was like a couple of pieces of paper. This is the idea. And there was funding. There was funding when I started. That was great. But I would have done it anyway because I do think I'm a bit of a risk taker. And also, you know what, throughout my career, every time I've thrown a ball up in the air, I've always caught it. And I, I believe the universe supports you when you're following a path. If you do things out of fear, if you do things out of, you know, for money, you, you, you'll regret it. That's how I feel. And I've always tried not to focus on that. So when this came up, it was like, wow, that's, that's what I do. You know, for many years, I had this African proverb as my email sort of signature, which everybody talks about now, but I think I was one of the first people to use it. <laughs> it was until lions learn to write, hunters will tell their stories for them. It just resonated so strongly with me that, you know, if as Africans, we don't tell our stories, who will? And what I saw was that other people were telling our stories, even to this day, you know, people say, you know, people say, oh, we have to tell our own stories, but are we, are we? Yeah, so, so a lot happened, but, but the mission is very clear in my head because it's always been in my head. How do we shift narratives? So even when we support artists or we support media, it's artists who also believe in that. So if you are an artist and you're painting the countryside in England, <laughs> we're not going to fund you, not interested. But if you're an artist who's kind of showing a different perspective of your community, you know, your country, the continent, or just doing things a little bit differently, but proudly African, then that, those are the kind of artists that we want in our community. You know, I get a lot of messages or people who just reach out and say, African Filter is doing amazing work. And it 
it, it validates you because, you know, often you put your head down and you're doing the work, you're thinking about mission, you're doing this. And the work is making grants to a certain extent. It's writing, um, doing research, it's writing opinion pieces, it's work. So sometimes your head is buried and then people remind you that actually this is working. And you know what? It, it, we're, it's, a, it's a journey. We're on a path. We're not, we're not going to change the narrative now. But what I think African Filter has been able to do in a very short space of time is make people more conscious about narrative in, in a way that we haven't been conscious before. And I think things like Black Lives Matter, in fact, movements like Me Too, it's almost just allowed the underdog to come out. And I think Africa, to a certain extent, has been an underdog. And in fact, just today, somebody sent me a, uh, somebody's tweet on Woman King, Viola Davis's a movie, saying that some of the language was used and some of the music and some of the stuff in that film is not authentically from that region. And the person said, you know, it's just like typical. They just, you know, just put an African language. Africans won't know the difference. That wouldn't, nobody would have said that a little while ago. Nobody would have said that a while ago. And one of the things that we know, when I was in New York last week, I made contact and hopefully I will have a meeting with the head of diversity and something, something at Disney to start looking that when you are making, and Disney's making global films, you know, about Africa included, how can we get authentic Africans involved in the, not just the storytelling process, but actually the output? So, for example, that if there was somebody from that region in West Africa where the warrior, the, you know, Dahomey um, women came from, they'd be able to say, mm -mm, that is not right. And, and look, I even remember, even on Jacob's Cross, I used to have to tie a gili, which is a Nigerian, you know, head tie. But Makeup would do it, you know, wardrobe would do it. And they went Nigerian. So one day, you know, <laughs> you know, you film in different things. So they put this thing on my head completely the wrong way around. I just went off onto set. You know, somebody emailed and said, Moki, you should know better. Like, why are you wearing a head tie like that? So it's so easy to get it. And I, I don't think people are, you know, deliberately, you know, doing things wrong. But we need to kind of be that watchdog for our culture, for, for how we want to be represented. And I think that's what Afro Filter is opening a space to do and we're not the only ones doing it but we are one of the few people who are doing it deliberately <laughs> i'll tell you one thing about me i do tend to want change after a short space of time so i feel that we will keep trying to reinvent ourselves because what we're doing there's no precedence for it we have you know as far as i know there's no you know narrative change organization working in africa that we could copy or, or look to so we've kind of made it up as we, we go. And I like that. I like that iterating and trying to figure out, can we do it better? And that's something I kind of wake up every day, which can be frustrating to <laughs> my team. How can we do it better? Just because we did it this way last year, can we do it better? Do we have to keep on doing it? And I feel that that's what an organization needs to survive. If you are constantly questioning yourself, because I think the type of leader an organization needs is one that who's open to change and who's willing to change. You have your plan. And my plan is that we will still be around and we will be sustainable and they're tenants of what we do. We will continue to do research. We will continue to do our grant making, different ways of doing it, but we will build community and we will continue to be a watchdog. Those pillars are what we have put firmly in the ground and we'll continue to do those, but how we approach it is what will change. One thing I feel is that Sometimes we don't give things a chance. You know, you, you, you decide you're going to do a podcast. Five episodes in, you're like, you know what, I'm going on to something else. And I think, yes, there's, a, there's something to be said for experimenting, you know, do, doing visual art. And you don't have to have one career or one skill or one talent. But whatever it is, you do stay with it. Stay with it because that's how you grow the experience. That's how you get better. And when you get better, that's when you get the reward. And people want instant. And I feel that's 
sad because if you look at artists in the past who made money they made money after they died sadly I mean look at the big artists you know you've got it it takes time to build your reputation it takes a lot of work this um Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours you need to put that work in so that would be my advice yeah you know what I'd like to add I'd love to add that I think you're an amazing interviewer I do, I do. I think, I think the style of this show, the easy sort of, you know, let's just have a chat. Very sort of, I haven't spoken, I haven't told some of these stories ever. <laughs> Definitely not in a public space. So I, I just want to commend you on that. I think you're amazing. And, 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 you know, for people who can't see, you've got this amazing, encouraging smile, big smile that's really warm. So I, do, I, I want your listeners to know that if they don't know that already. Catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. I hope you enjoyed Moki's story and it inspired you to kind of like find your passion because your career could be built on that. You know what I mean? Like that thing that's, I normally say that thing that sets your soul on fire. For example, over the weekend, well on Friday, it was International Podcast Day and I found myself in panels around podcasting in Africa. And at a point, the conversation found its way to how to have authentic African stories and what those in the diaspora can do and we were talking about just like making sure that Africans have agency over their stories and voices I found myself like contributing so much and and it was so invigorating and just I just felt myself come alive when I was talking about things around the continent and Africans and agency over our stories and in that moment I knew yep the soul's on fire so like your career can be based not just on your skill set but I think it's more fulfilling when it's based on your passion what what sets your soul on fire that's one thing I, I felt very connected to when I listened to Moki's story and also just the thoughts around saying yes so if there's an audition why not try out for it even if it's in an industry that is super different from the one you're in what's the worst that could happen you know what's the best that could happen you could end up finding that passion and and I really like that about her story. I like that. It just reminded me, say yes more to opportunities. And also, I said this earlier, how you can connect the dots backwards in hindsight. So in the show notes, I've put a link to African Filters website. You can check them out, see the awesome stuff that they do. And you'll also find, by the way, a link to a Google form in case you want to share your story on this podcast. There is a Google form for you to fill out, fill it out, and I'm going to get back to you. And if you want to catch this podcast on Trace FM here in Kenya, just head over to traceradio.co.ke. Once you're there, you'll see they have a brand new app, which makes it super easy for you to listen. You will catch Legally Clueless there every Monday and Wednesday at 1pm and 11pm and every Friday at 1pm. I need to get into bed. I think I've had way too much Prosecco. <laughs> way too much Prosecco, but I've had such a, just a wonderful, a wonderful evening with new friends. It's always so nice to make new friends, isn't it? So I'm going to leave you with what I say all the time. And I just feel like the conversations I had today has reminded me of what I constantly say here, which is like grace, just like have more grace, have more grace for yourself. You're doing the best that you can. You're navigating a lot and also have grace towards others. Don't, don't get lost in centering yourself like just I don't know because sometimes it's a bit 
it's a bit hard and draining to have grace for others but if you can find the strength in you i think i think a little grace goes a pretty long way that's it for this episode of legally clueless you can share this podcast with your friends you can keep it for yourself i'm not judging just make sure you're here next week for the next episode